The truth lives. Political bomb show starring Rishon Blyden. You're sitting at your desk. You know it's time to go. You've said that to yourself over a million times. But this time you know, for sure, is real. You're tired. You're just so very tired. Your parents pissed you off. Like school wasn't bad enough today. You go to get the rope. Or the knife. Or the gun. Or just whatever you choose to use because you're that desperate to leave. You're ready. You think of it as some game. The first one dead is the first one who wins. No one's home. It's the perfect time. You're ready. If you don't do it now, you're just gonna look down on yourself even more forever. You're gonna hate yourself even more. No one knows, no one will know, until later on. Instead of getting a paper and a pen, you get the video camera along with a chair. You're standing on the chair. You decide to go with the road. You're gone instantly, and there'll be no noise. One side of the rope is tied to the top of your fan while the other is already around your neck. You're in tears and you know it's for real this time. You can feel it. You turn on the video camera and you just stare at that red light blinking upon your eyes. You start to mumble out a few words. Mom and Dad, I'm sorry. I don't know why I'm sorry, but I'm sorry. I just can't do this anymore. I don't even know who I am anymore. I've lost myself, and I seem to not be able to find my way back. Please don't blame yourself, please. I love you both. Please tell my siblings the same. Stay strong and stay safe. I'll see you all soon. You say sorry to your best friend because you know you won't be there for him anymore. Especially when he needs you more than ever. You say sorry to everyone you can think of. Even yourself. You're sorry for not being strong anymore. You're sorry for breaking down. You're sorry for putting them through so much pain in their life. You stare, once again, at that red light blinking upon your eyes. One foot is off the chair now, as you begin to mouth the word goodbye. You have the remote control to turn off the camera in your right hand. Your pointer finger on the off button already. You click 
that button. And as soon as you see that light go off, you go off. Both feet are now off the chair. That chair is on the floor. The room is filled with silence. You're dead. You're gone. There's no going back. Everything is over. You don't have to live in pain anymore. But everyone else will. What are your parents gonna think? What about your little brother or your little sister? What are they gonna do? You're gone. You're dead. There's no going back. You ended your life because the person you liked only thought of you as a friend? You ended your life because that one teacher was harder on you than anyone else in the class because she knew that you were the only one that is going somewhere in life. Your parents are home now. They call your name telling you that they're home just like they normally do whenever they get home but something's different you don't answer they don't hear your voice they get worried you always answer they come upstairs thinking you're sleeping or showering your mom opens your bedroom door and screams at the top of her lungs she instantly passes out your little sister hears her and comes up after her. She screams, Daddy, help! She runs over to you, hitting your leg, begging you to wake up. Wake up! Wake up! Please stop! Wake up! But you don't answer. You're not waking up. You're gone. You're dead. There's no waking up. There's no going back. Your dad comes running upstairs and all he could do is stare. He watches his baby girl swing back and forth on a rope. He sees the video camera and he sees the chair, but he doesn't move. He's stiff as a board. He cries. Your dad never cries. He picks up the phone and calls 911. He can barely get the words. My daughter committed suicide out of his mouth. He's in tears. Your little sister stares at your dad. He hangs up and she jumps right into your daddy's arms, crying harder than ever. She's too young to understand completely, but she knows you're gone. She knows you're dead and she knows that you're never coming back. Everything is over. The cops finally arrive. They take your mom out of your room they push your dad and sister out of your room. And now they're sitting in the living room. They take your body down off those ropes and lay you on the stretcher. They cover your body and out you go. Just like that. In the blink of an eye, everything happened and everything was over. You're gone. You're dead. There is no going back. Nothing is the same. Two weeks have passed and your mom still stares out the window more than half of the day. Sometimes even the whole day. Your little sister still hasn't returned to school. 
Your dad was forced to go to work so he could pay all the bills for your week and your funeral. Eventually, they found the strength to go back into your room. Your door hasn't been opened for two months. The rope is still laying on the floor, the same place the cops put it, and the video camera is still sitting on the table. They don't even dare to watch that video. It will never be seen. They slowly pick up the ropes and throw it in the garbage. Chills run up their spine. Your mom basically in tears. They brush off your bed, making it neat like they used to do every morning after you went to school. Your desk was empty. It didn't have those little sticky notes you used to leave before you ran to the bus saying, have a good day, mom, remember to smile. Or have fun at work, dad. Smiley face. You pretended to be so happy. You even tricked yourself. Your bed was made and your room was clean. They shut the door and it remained shut. Your school is still in distress. You thought no one cared and you thought no one noticed you. You remember that girl that said no to being your lab partner? Yeah, she cuts every single night now because she thinks it's her fault that you died. You remember that boy that tripped you by accident, looked at you and just didn't say sorry? Yeah, he's in suicidal therapy five days a week in the hospital because he feels a smile could have saved your life and he didn't give that to you. Do you remember that teacher that was hard on you that day? She quit her job because she felt she wasn't suited to teach anymore. You're gone, you're dead. There's no going back. Four years have passed now. Your little sister is now 15 years old. She started a club. It's in her school dedicated to you. Secrets is what she calls it. The club is formed for kids to speak their hearts without anyone judging them. They could say anything they want to and talk about anything they needed to. If they were suicidal, they always had someone to talk to. That was your problem. You didn't want to talk to anyone. You had everything bottled inside of you. You acted as if you were the happiest kid on the planet and you acted as if you had the perfect life. You played that happy character so well that even you started to believe it. You would be so happy all day and as soon as you laid in bed that night, the thoughts came back. A little fight between you and your parents could have set you off. But with everything inside of you bottled up for years, you just hit your limits. You're gone, you're dead. There's no going back. Your room will never be occupied. Your mom still cries every single night. Your dad isn't as strong as he used to be. Your little sister will never grow up with you by her side, moving her in the right direction. She needed you. Your best friend is still torn up. He needed you. Your parents don't know what to do anymore. They needed you. Your school now has a club dedicated to you, so teens will not make the same mistake as you did. Your life was precious, and you took it away in the blink of an eye. All you needed was a smile. It's all you needed to show you that everything will be okay. But since you're gone, 
just know people cared. People always have cared. And people always will care. You were just way too upset to see that back then. You were just too caught up in the fact that you thought no one cared. When the truth was, more people cared about you than you ever thought they would. And you know what sucks? It sucks that you see that now that you're gone. And you didn't see that when you were still here. Your town will never be the same. A girl is gone. A special girl. A girl who thought no one cared. Everyone cared. I promise you. They care. They always have cared. And they always will care. We loved you. And no matter what, we will still always love you. Welcome to Political Bomb Show. I'm your host, Rayshon Blarden. If you are feeling like you are so far gone, so deep in depression that there's no other alternative than to take your life, stop and call the National Suicide Prevention Lifeline at 1-800-273-8255. 1-800-273-8255. You can also call 1-800-SUICIDE. 1-800-SUICIDE. Today's a very serious topic. Um, it's not a laughing matter. It's not a game. It's a very serious uh, problem in teenagers, young kids, in military personnel who came back from war with PTSD. So it's a very uh, serious topic. One that I've suffered with as a youngster and as a a young man, but by the grace of God, I was able to get out of that. I don't think that way anymore, but the enemy's always trying to get in your mind, and that's where you have to be strong, and you can't give in to what the enemy tries to implant in your mind. Many times, something will be going wrong, and the enemy tries to plant, you just need to end this. And I just look and stare back at the enemy and say, screw yourself. I'm not ending anything. I'm too strong. I have many things left in life to do. I have many loved ones who would care and who would miss me and it'd be selfish of me. No matter what pain that I'm going through, I can will my way out of it. So obviously for me, faith played a huge role. But what if you're not a person who believes in God or or necessarily spiritual or have any faith or belief in anything, well, then that's an issue right there. And that may be one of the reasons why you're not able to fight through it. You're just not strong enough. You don't believe there's God. You don't believe in faith or anything. You just You just feel it. You're just here on the earth. You live and you die. And that's all you believe in. And you believe in nothing. So that's a a huge issue as far as you're concerned if you feel that there's no God. See, I'm a God-fearing person, so I would not attempt to do that because I know that 
that's a no-no. You can't take a life. You can't, especially you can't take your own life. So, teenagers in school, teenagers can be cruel. I was one, so I know that teenagers can be very cruel and horrible. I've been through it. Um, I wasn't the tallest kid. I was probably the shortest one in all of my classes. And I, I'll tell you a quick story. Um, I used to go to No Webster, No Webster um, Elementary. This was in uh, where was this West Hartford, Connecticut, and this kid I don't remember his name. I just knew that he always wanted. He always picked on me. He was huge, tall. He must have had to have been six feet tall. At least that's what it looked like to me. I was really short. And he'd always just pick on me. I'd go use the bathroom. And I'd look up in the stall. And there he was staring down at me with other kids. And then throwing wet toilet paper at me. And one day in class, he just really lost it. He, He picked me up and stood me up over his head and he threw me in the air and pretend like he was going to catch me and pull his hands away and now that was lights out I don't remember much at all and I believe that was the day that I've always suffered from major headaches I mean the headaches were so bad they'd make me cry as a youngster so I believe whatever it was that happened when I hit my head there that that affected me getting headaches I don't get headaches like that anymore but I still do get small headaches. Every now and then I'll get a really major headache, but nothing like it used to be when I was growing up. It was like so bad and blind and I would I couldn't take the light or anything. I had to just just stay in the darkness and so you know, if you're going through things like that or something that comes into play now is online or cyberbullying, as they call it. I, we didn't have to worry about cyberbullying because we um, we didn't really have all these social networks around. But there's really a quick and easy way to solve that problem. It really is. Unless, I mean, I watched one story where the mother took the girl out of school, changed the phone number, and took her Facebook down. But these 15 bullies, these girls, these thugs followed her to other social media networks and essentially told her to kill herself and she jumped off of a bridge, I believe. So that's really sad. It's really unfortunate that you have 15 evil girls out there that would do this. I don't understand why anyone would... come to understand it was over a boy of course what else so i mean a boy made you 15 girls make a girl commit suicide like this it's really 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 unfortunate but um yeah i'm here to tell you that if you really and truly feel there's no one out there you don't have a friend in the world who will listen to your story and 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 you know just being be a support line for you there's definitely the national suicide prevention 
prevention lifeline, they will definitely care about your life. 1-800-273-8255. 1-800-273-8255. I'll be right back. Suicide. The act of taking your own life. A horrific act, but sadly, a common occurrence. Every 40 seconds, someone dies from suicide. That's 1 million people per year. Maybe you've never dealt with suicide directly. Maybe someone you know has attempted or committed suicide. Perhaps you have attempted suicide. Whatever your experience with suicide is, it's very important to understand the signs of suicidal behavior. But please keep in mind that not every suicidal person will show these signs. In addition, seeing a single sign does not mean that the person is suicidal. The point of this video is for you to understand these signs and work out whether the person needs a friend or professional help. Sign number one, suicidal talk. What do you think about suicide? Have you ever thought about killing yourself? How would you kill yourself? What do you think is the best way to commit suicide? Questions or phrases like this may suggest that a person is considering it. They talk about it because they want your opinion. In a way, they are asking for advice on committing suicide while not openly admitting to it. This may also be a way they are screaming for help. Sign number two, giving away prized possessions. It's an odd occurrence when someone gives away expensive items or items they may need. In their mind, where they're going, they don't need material things. Giving away material possessions to loved ones may be a way they think they are helping close friends and family after their death. Sign number three, changes to their will. There are usually a number of triggering events that cause someone to write their will. These events include marriage, having kids, older age, starting a business, or a close loved one dying. If a person seems to want to write a will out of the blue, try asking them why they have decided to write one. Sign number four, obtaining a weapon. Of course, the mere act of obtaining a weapon doesn't mean someone is suicidal, but paired with the previous signs mentioned should serve as a warning, especially if they don't show any signs of taking up things like shooting as a sport, shooting as a hobby, or gun collecting. Sign number five, strange sleeping patterns. Though strange sleeping patterns are often seen in suicide, people, it isn't the sleeping disorder that causes this. It is actually stress or restless thoughts from personal problems that cause a person to have trouble sleeping at night. Because of that, the inability to sleep that lasts a long period of time may be a clue that someone is suffering from depression or suicidal thoughts. Sign number six, low energy. Low energy levels are often seen in people with depression, which is sometimes coupled to suicidal thoughts. These low energy levels happen as a result of lack of sleep and little motivation to do activities that will actually help them feel better. Sign number seven, abusing drugs or alcohol. A study by Bruce Alexander examined the theory of drug addiction on rats. Previous studies have concluded rats to be highly motivated for addictive drugs despite the obvious risks like being electrocuted or deprivation of food. Alexander challenged that notion by conducting a study of his own. He would put the rats in cages where they were free to do activities and interact with other rats. In past studies, the rats were in cages alone, often with nothing to do but the addictive drug. In Alexander's study, he found the rats to rarely take the drug. The same implications can be made for humans. When humans don't feel connected to anyone, they may turn to drugs and alcohol as a form of escape. Another reason may be because they think the drug will give them enough willpower to commit suicide. Sign number eight, low motivation for social life. People who want to commit suicide often drop out of their social lives. Depressed and suicidal people often do not feel connected 
connected to others around them. As a result, they may end up dropping existing friends or family because they don't feel good enough for them. They may also see socializing as a distant, unimportant thing. Sign number nine, not participating in activities they love. Seen in depression as well, suicidal people find no interest in activities they love anymore. Nothing seems to matter and their interest is diminished. Sign number 10, self-harm. Self-harm is one of the biggest signs that someone might be suicidal. Examples of this include cutting, burning, and poisoning oneself. In a sense, it's a way that suicidal people test the waters to see if they actually have what it takes to commit suicide. Former self-harmers often say that the physical pain helps them escape the emotional one. Sign number 10, risky behavior. Studies have shown that suicidal people tend to take more risks. Look out for signs such as driving recklessly or picking fights. Sign number 11, emotional outbursts. Look for unexplained emotional reactions to certain things people have said in their presence. It might make no sense to you why these words are triggering such an emotional response, but it could be words that remind them of a traumatic event in their life. Sign number 12, body language. This is a very general sign, but paired with the previous signs could be a good clue of depression and suicidal thoughts. Look for body language such as slumped shoulders, staring at the floor, and unwillingness to make eye contact. Sign number 13, past suicide attempts. The number one and most obvious sign that someone might be suicidal is if they have a history of attempting it in the past. This is called suicidal tendencies. One thing people don't understand about depression is that it's not easily cured by a pill. A sudden stop of medication may trigger a worst wave of depression that will lead to another suicide attempt. Sign number 14, happiness and calmness. This sign is hard to spot because you may be under the impression that the person is becoming better. A misconception about depression is that the lowest point, you know, when they're really sad and in bed in one's life, is what causes this person to commit suicide. What actually happens at this point is that the person is unwilling to do anything. They are at such a low point, they are unwilling to eat, watch TV, or partake in their favorite activities. Their days are spent mostly in bed. Committing suicide actually takes energy and planning. So this happens just above the lowest point when they have the energy to think clearly and execute it. Just before the suicide, family members or close friends who were in contact with the victim have even reported seeing them happy and calm. This is because the suicidal person has finalized their plan and thinks they can finally escape the pain of this world. So those were the 14 signs someone may be suicidal. Now again, keep in mind that a single sign doesn't necessarily mean someone thinks about hurting them. Welcome back to Political Bombso. The first story that I want you to listen to is from Jamie Lee. She is someone that lost her dad because he committed suicide. And I'll let her tell her story. I have tried to film this video so many times and I don't know why, but every time I try and film it, what I'm trying to say and what I'm trying to get across is not what I want. So hopefully this is my final attempt. I'm talking about something that's super serious. I'm going to be talking about how I felt about my dad killing himself. So if you are someone that easily gets upset, if someone that can't deal with something like this, this might be a trigger video for you. Please don't watch, but I do advise you, if you don't know too much about suicide or if you're going through this, please watch it because I want to share my story and I want people to hear my voice and hear what I have to say about suicide. I actually never really wanted to film this video because personally, 
I felt like it was disrespectful to my dad to film about how he died, to share with the world on how he died. The reason why was because suicide, for some dumb ass reason, is shunned upon. It's considered to be weak to kill yourself, and it's, most of the time people consider it even to be selfish to end your life and ruin the people's lives around you by doing so. People just, they don't have any idea, really. They don't know what it's really like to lose someone. If you've lost someone through this, please comment below. I'd love to hear your experience or even make a video and let me know that you've done it so. So, I was always a daddy's little girl. My dad was my idol. I thought he was funny. I thought he was caring. I thought he was amazing in every single aspect of life. So as a young family, we moved a lot. Um, we started in North Queensland, then we moved down to New South Wales. My dad was a butcher by trade and we bought this butchery in Woolgooga, which was really close to Coss Harbour. My dad worked a lot. He worked Monday through to Sunday from like five o'clock in the morning through to seven o'clock at night. He did this because he wanted to take care of his family and he did. We were in a really good financial state when we owned this butcher shop, but my dad's dad, so my granddad ended up dying. They lived in North Queensland, so me and my family all moved up to North Queensland or back up to North Queensland. After this, my dad started to get sick. It was a slow process. My dad didn't get automatically heaps, heaps of pain all at once. Um, but some days he would be working and he would start getting pain in his arms. A year or so goes past and he starts getting pain in his legs. And then more and more time goes past and he starts getting pain all over his body all the time. In 2000 and I think 11, he was diagnosed with fibromyalgia. I'm pretty sure I pronounced that wrong, but Fibromyalgia is a medical condition characterized by chronic widespread pain and heightened pain response to pressure. Other symptoms include feeling tired to a degree that normal activities are affected, sleep problems, and troubles with memory. Some people also report restless leg syndrome, bowel or bladder problems, numbness and tingling, and sensitivity to noise, light, or temperature. Fibromyalgia is frequently associated with depression, anxiety, and post-traumatic stress disorder. Other types of chronic pain are also frequently present. He was diagnosed with it, and after that, things just got so much worse. He started to lose sleep proper. I mean, like three hours of sleep a night, and that was on a good night. He was tired all the time. He was down all the time. He started saying suicidal things like, when I'm gone, you guys can survive without me. Um, I just want to sleep. I just want to go to sleep. I just want to die. Things like that. My 15-year-old self or 14-year-old self, it was for a couple years, was hearing on a weekly basis. 2011 was a difficult, difficult year for not just him but the family because fibro is uncurable. People that have it, sometimes just one day um, they'll wake up and just never have it again and other people just will have it and just try and live with it. Some cases are worse than others 
and my dad just started feeling helpless and he started getting really bad anxiety over it and really bad depression over it because when you're told that something isn't curable but you're suffering so badly with it and it's affecting your sleep I know with me if I have a headache and I can't sleep I'm like the biggest bitch I feel like the world is ending to think that my dad was in constant pain for years and years and years and he was also losing heaps and heaps of sleep no wonder he started to create depression in February sometime in February I can't remember the exact date but he attempted to commit suicide um, I used to work when I was younger um, I would work two hours in the afternoon for like one or two days a week I worked at this office supply store and I would always panic that I was going to be late because what I normally had to do was I put my uniform in my bag I would finish school at 3 walked down to work and by 3.30 I was meant to start and I had a really long like area to walk this time I actually forgot to wash my uniform and my dad said he would wash it he was home all day and that when I get home he would just take me to work and I don't have to worry about the time I ended up walking home and I got home and I knew that my dad had recently got some new sleeping tablets because he was suffering with his sleep. I walked into the room and I saw that he was asleep on his bed. So he had his legs on the floor and then he had his just back on the bed. To me what it looked like was he just lied down, tried out these pills, these new pills and he was so exhausted and these pills were working, he fell asleep. I softly whispered to my dad like dad are you awake just to see if he was just like closing his eyes he didn't wake up so I full-on panicked that I was going to be late for work and I just went to work two hours later I got home at 5 30 my dad was still asleep um by six o'clock my mum had got home by like 6 15 my brother was definitely home and my sister ended up getting home sometime too we were like, these tablets must be freaking amazing. Like, all the other tablets he's tried didn't work. We looked in the cupboard to have a look at these pills just to see all of them were gone. We full-on freaked our shit titties off. Quickly researched if you could have an overdose of these pills. Realized you could. Called the ambulance as soon as we could. Um, we lived in a small country town. So they put him in a helicopter and flew him to the local big hospital. Um, he was there for about 12 hours and he ended up waking up. The words that came out of his mouth as soon as he woke up were, Oh, I'm still alive. It didn't work. As a 15-year-old girl hearing that from their dad, it's so sad to think that he was in that much pain that he just wanted to die he just wanted to sleep I know some people do it for the attention but even if you do it for the attention you are suffering that badly to go to that extremes to get that attention so he's in the emergency for a little bit and then after that he went into the psych ward because if you try and commit suicide you're mentally unwell I do that because my dad wasn't mentally unstable or anything but you're mentally unwell he was away from the house for two weeks um, in total um, and then after those two weeks he came home he was home for two weeks on the 1st of March 2012 
he committed suicide. This is how I remember the day. I was going to go watch Taylor Swift in Brisbane on the 3rd of March. I was so excited. I was going with a friend's family and the friend's family came to the front door in the morning before school to say to my dad, like let him know exactly how long we're gonna be away for and when we're leaving and just to set up a, a game plan, like, oh, we're gonna come pick Jamie up this time. It's just to like let my dad know exactly what's happening and not to keep him out of the loop because they were parents and they knew what it was like to be parents. So they just wanted to be a parent, I guess. And I was so excited that I used to hug and kiss my dad every morning before I went to school just to reassure him that I love him and that don't commit suicide again because I couldn't deal with you dying basically so I would hug and kiss him every morning and tell him how much I love him and how much I'm gonna miss him being at school that day I was so absorbed in what was happening with Taylor Swift that I completely forgot to kiss him and hug him and I know it's something so small not important but to me, that was something really important because I did it every single day and the one day that I didn't do it, he ended up killing himself. I know he didn't do it because of that, but I just didn't get to kiss him and say goodbye for the last time. Ooh, this is hard. My friend's parents ended up taking me to school and... I got to school, I was in my last class, it was English and I think we are doing something so stupid like Romeo and Juliet, sorry if you like English and sorry if you like Romeo and Juliet. Then I got a knock on the door, it was the guidance counsellor, he said mum wanted me home um, and that I'm meant to go with him right now. So walking up to the house, the guidance counsellor was behind me and my sister, me and my sister kind of just looking at each other like what the hell, like what could be up? We noticed that there was a police car nearby and we're like please to god make this not our house we start walking in and we see my brother on the table bursting out in tears right next to him is a police officer i thought frig my brother's gotten in a fight with someone he's punched someone killed them or he just punched someone and they're pressing charges on my brother i'm just panicking at this point because i'm like i don't want my brother to go to jail then i look at my mom and my mom's just crying like her whole like face is just like covered in water from her tears and I just look at her and then the words that come out of my mom's mouth is your dad's dead my mom just starts crying and crying I start crying and crying my sister starts crying and crying and we just like all are like a complete wreck I'm in complete denial thinking no he just attempted to kill himself again he didn't actually die but this time he actually did die. My mum was cutting hair for a client because my mum's a hairdresser and she was at home at the time. And I think the client had to go to the toilet or the client had to do something and the client discovered my dad dead. And she screamed, my mum came out and discovered my dad's body that stage my dad had already died um and my mom was pretty scarred by that i don't know even any graphic details i just know how he died and 
yeah I just want you guys to know that if you are going through anything like this you're not alone so many people go through this what you are going through is unique but you also have other people that are going through that and if you're suffering that badly go and get help go talk to someone my best advice to someone that is going through something like that go to a psychologist because they are someone that doesn't know you they are someone that has tools and has ways to help you after this i suffered so badly with anxiety and then i started getting depression i started getting really bad suicidal thoughts i got into self-harm i was super against psychologists i understand you might think they're just out for your money but they are really good at healing you and they're really good at teaching you things that you wouldn't know unless you went like say if you're having a panic attack little exercises that you can do to help you if you're a self-harmer my psychologist actually told me that i could get a box and fill it with certain things that preoccupy your mind so that you don't self-harm anyway i hope somebody out there found this video helpful or relatable or anything really um that is that um yeah alrighty I got a G.O. Bye, my lovers. I love you long time. And see ya. The keyword phrase of the day is walk away from Democrats. Text us now, 323-835-1123 or contact us at politicalbombshow.cf. Thank you, Jamie Lee. I know that it wasn't easy telling your story. You know, I've never lost someone... Well, actually, I take that back. I I did, but I wasn't, you know, they were a childhood friend, and I f found out about them committing suicide in their backyard, hanging themselves, saying that they're going to go smoke some corn. That's code word for weed with the devil. So that's very, uh, very aggressive and just, you know, even though I'd moved away for so long, I f just feel a little bit of guilt that maybe if I had kept in touch with them, maybe things would have been b different. So I do feel bad about that. So I could only imagine if it was someone that I was, you know, close to um, as far as recent and and they were in my life and they did that, how would I feel? Because I have not heard or seen him in over 15 years and when I heard the story it still affected me deeply so I could only imagine how Jamie Lee felt that her dad did that so very very uh tragic story and uh again if you feel like you have no one to talk to in the world you can call the National Suicide Prevention Lifeline at one 800 273-8255 or simply call 1-800-SUICIDE 1-800-SUICIDE international I don't have those numbers but if you go to www.suicide.org you can uh, look it up there a more specific address is www.suicide.org 
suicide.org forward slash international hyphen suicide hyphen hotlines dot html so like i said that was a very tragic story and you know i've i almost put my family through that when i was young but my sister on many occasions she, she just always knew i think she's the only one who knew i don't know if she'd ever told anyone about it but she's always been the one to stop me from doing it i can't really remember how many times maybe three times three or four times until i gave up i just gave up on it this was when i was a child i was like she's not gonna allow this to happen she just knew i don't know how she knew i've never talked about it as in a grown-up you know <clears throat> we don't live in the same uh state anymore and uh so yeah i haven't really i don't think i'd bring it up anyway but <clears throat> it's a very uh very uh sad thing when when you feel like you just don't have anything anything to live for anymore it's just a sad thing and and for those of you who are saying that oh you'll never understand yes i i do because i was there and I've, i was i i did at least four or five attempts in my life until i just you know you know like uh, god intervened in my case with faith and no I wouldn't do that even if you paid me but uh, if you don't feel like you have anyone to talk to you really should call that hotline I would even accept calls if someone called me on the, no matter when and I, if I woke up and answered my phone I would talk to you about it because I feel that it's very unfortunately it's a uh, a growing epidemic in the teenage world PTSD from from war and so yeah it's a tragic story so I don't know you know what your what your um, cyberbullying feels like because I've never been cyberbullied to the point that I wanted to to do something to myself because my thing with the cyberbullying is uh well before I even talk about that I want to um I want to play another story and this is um is not necessarily a suicide story but it's it's the number one cause that leads to suicide and Andrew, he's very depressed and he's going through depression and anxiety. And uh, I think his story deserves to be heard. So we're going to hear from Andrew right now. The year of 2010, I will never forget. I was hit hard with depression. It's like it was just there just looking at me. Constantly hospitalized, sick mentally and physically. An overwhelming feeling of nothingness just came over me. Sleepless nights, eating habits change, 
you become distant from everyone and everything. Constant stress, tiredness all the time, thoughts of just leaving it all behind. Rapidly, I lost weight. I was passing out from exhaustion almost every day, taken away in ambulances, hospitalized to try and determine the main cause of what is going on with me. Family nor friends could understand. I had no one to go to. Fighting it is the hardest part. You cannot begin to explain what it's like to see your mother crying, that, that strong person in your life just breaking down and seeing your best friend in tears. It's just hard to deal with. I had so much that I wanted to achieve in life, but I just had no motivation left. I started to do a lot of bad things, hang around with a lot of bad people, make a lot of bad choices. I just wasn't me. I was the sensitive kid. I wasn't as tough as the other people around. It was very easy for me to break down. No one could understand the pain that I was going through. So I thought, what's the point? I'm not getting anywhere in life. I need a change in my life, a new start. I needed to find myself. So what I eventually did was I got help and calling Beyond Blue was the best thing that I could have ever done because if it wasn't for them, then I'd still be less than dark. You are not alone, we believe in you. You'll never know how easy it is to go and tell your loved ones, go and tell your friends and you'll be surprised just how much they will love you and care for you and support you through this. But it's important that you believe in yourself, okay, and not to let anyone else drag you down, okay, because you are good enough, you gotta, you gotta get up and you gotta keep going, okay, and don't let anything else drag you down. Suicide, the act of taking your own life. A horrific act, but sadly, a common occurrence. Every 40 seconds, someone dies from suicide. That's 1 million people per year. Maybe you've never dealt with suicide directly. Maybe someone you know has attempted or committed suicide. Perhaps you have attempted suicide. Whatever your experience with suicide is, it's very important to understand the signs of suicidal behavior. But please keep in mind that not every suicidal person will show these signs. In addition, seeing a single sign does not mean that the person is suicidal. The point of this video is for you to understand 
understand these signs and work out whether the person needs a friend or professional help. Sign number one, suicidal talk. What do you think about suicide? Have you ever thought about killing yourself? How would you kill yourself? What do you think is the best way to commit suicide? Questions or phrases like this may suggest that a person is considering it. They talk about it because they want your opinion. In a way, they are asking for advice on committing suicide while not openly admitting to it. This may also be a way they are screaming for help. Sign number two, giving away prized possessions. It's an odd occurrence when someone gives away expensive items or items they may need. In their mind, where they're going, they don't need material things. Giving away material possessions to loved ones may be a way they think they are helping close friends and family after their death. Sign number three, changes to their will. There are usually a number of triggering events that cause someone to write their will. These events include marriage, having kids, older age, starting a business, or a close loved one dying. If a person seems to want to write a will out of the blue, try asking them why they have decided to write one. Sign number four, obtaining a weapon. Of course, the mere act of obtaining a weapon doesn't mean someone is suicidal, but paired with the previous signs mentioned should serve as a warning, especially if they don't show any signs of taking up things like shooting as a sport, shooting as a hobby, or gun collecting. Sign number five, strange sleeping patterns. Though strange sleeping patterns are often seen in suicide, people, it isn't the sleeping disorder that causes this. It is actually stress or restless thoughts from personal problems that cause a person to have trouble sleeping at night. Because of that, the inability to sleep that lasts a long period of time may be a clue that someone is suffering from depression or suicidal thoughts. Sign number six, low energy. Low energy levels are often seen in people with depression, which is sometimes coupled to suicidal thoughts. These low energy levels happen as a result of lack of sleep and little motivation to do activities that will actually help them feel better. Sign number seven, abusing drugs or alcohol. A study by Bruce Alexander examined the theory of drug addiction on rats. Previous studies have concluded rats to be highly motivated for addictive drugs despite the obvious risks like being electrocuted or deprivation of food. Alexander challenged that notion by conducting a study of his own. He would put the rats in cages where they were free to do activities and interact with other rats. In past studies, the rats were in cages alone, often with nothing to do but the addictive drug. In Alexander's study, he found the rats to rarely take the drug. The same implications can be made for humans. When humans don't feel connected to anyone, they may turn to drugs and alcohol as a form of escape. Another reason may be because they think the drug will give them enough willpower to commit suicide. Sign number eight, low motivation for social life. People who want to commit suicide often drop out of their social lives. Depressed and suicidal people often do not feel connected to others around them. As a result, they may end up dropping existing friends or family because they don't feel good enough for them. They may also see socializing as a distant, unimportant thing. Sign number nine, not participating in activities they love. Seen in depression as well, suicidal people find no interest in activities they love anymore. Nothing seems to matter and their interest is diminished. Sign number 10, self-harm. Self-harm is one of the biggest signs that someone might be suicidal. Examples of this include cutting, burning, and poisoning oneself. In a sense, it's a way that suicidal people test the waters to see if they actually have what it takes to commit suicide. Former self-harmers often say that the physical pain helps them escape the emotional one. Sign number 10, risky behavior. Studies have shown that suicidal people tend to take more risks. Look out for signs such as driving recklessly or picking fights. Sign number 11, emotional outbursts. Look for unexplained emotional reactions to certain things people have said in their presence. It might make no sense to 
you why these words are triggering such an emotional response, but it could be words that remind them of a traumatic event in their life. Sign number 12, body language. This is a very general sign, but paired with the previous signs could be a good clue of depression and suicidal thoughts. Look for body language such as slumped shoulders, staring at the floor, and unwillingness to make eye contact. Sign number 13, past suicide attempts. The number one and most obvious sign that someone might be suicidal is if they have a history of attempting it in the past. This is called suicidal tendencies. One thing people don't understand about depression is that it's not easily cured by a pill. A sudden stop of medication may trigger a worst wave of depression that will lead to another suicide attempt. Sign number 14, happiness and calmness. This sign is hard to spot because you may be under the impression that the person is becoming better. Better. A misconception about depression is that the lowest point, you know, when they're really sad and in bed in one's life, is what causes this person to commit suicide. What actually happens at this point is that the person is unwilling to do anything. They are at such a low point, they are unwilling to eat, watch TV, or partake in their favorite activities. Their days are spent mostly in bed. Committing suicide actually takes energy and planning. So this happens just above the lowest point when they have the energy to think clearly and exist. Just before the suicide, family members or close friends who were in contact with the victim have even reported seeing them happy and calm. This is because the suicidal person has finalized their plan and thinks they can finally escape the pain of this world. So those were the 14 signs someone may be suicidal. Now again, keep in mind that a single sign doesn't necessarily mean someone thinks about hurting them. That was very uh, hard-hitting and reminded me of how I was. Sometimes I still have some of the symptoms that he spoke of, but like I said, I don't give in to the enemy. And that's because of my, I have such a strong, powerful will and my spirit, my spiritual belief in God. And I won't allow myself to get to that level of, of nothinglessness. When I feel like the nothinglessness is coming on, I find something to do. I won't just give into it and living alone and being single it's a lot more difficult but then again when I was a child I didn't live alone and it kind of still felt the same I still was able to feel the nothinglessness and doesn't matter who was around I still uh, still didn't feel like life was worth anything so I can't really say that being single, living alone, and having friends and family around, that that would help because when you get so down that deep, although if, obviously if you have friends and family around, you could talk to them, but or can you? Sometimes you, you can't talk to them. And that's where these suicide hotlines come into play. Sometimes it's easier to tell a stranger how you feel than to tell a friend or a family member. So, like I said, these numbers are something that you should have in your uh, your phone contacts if you ever think that you're this type of person. 1-800-SUICIDE. It's an easy one to remember. 1-800-SUICIDE. www.suicide.org or the National Suicide Prevention Lifeline. 1-800-273-8255. But my problem is, uh, for me, I don't necessarily cut off the things that I love doing. Like I'll still make music, still do my music videos, 
still watch TV series that I like, but some it's you know it's gotta something's gotta give, and for me it's it's keeping the apartment clean. I just don't even you know it builds up things build up because I just. I think that's one thing I always struggled with too as a kid. I just, just didn't keep things clean as I should, and then it builds up to a point where I'm just walking around and it's just wow, what happened here? A bomb exploded in this place. So that's uh, one of the ways that that it hits me. It's almost. Like, I can't even describe it. It's just something just blocks and prevents me. Obviously, I have to fight through it because I don't want to live like a slob. I fight through it and I clean things up. But um, it's a very difficult topic to talk about. And if anyone wants to talk to me and t- or tell the story to my audience, you can feel free to definitely... Uh, Definitely give us a call, and and uh, just talk to us. The quickest way you can uh, do that, if you just go to politicalbombshow.cf, go to my bio page, and under the picture you'll see a form there. You can click on and go, or just go to the contact page and get my number, and uh, just tell your story. But it's a very difficult and sad situation. I can't even begin to uh, to imagine how someone feel when they they had a family and they had to go to war for I don't know how long, and they're out of touch when they come back. Maybe the wife moved on because she is lonely because she had no one around because you were gone fighting a war for your country, and. Uh, you come back to nothing. Your children, they're already grown and gone and have a family of their own, so you missed out on that. Plus all the other things that goes along with being in war, which I have no idea because I've never went to war or been in a family that uh, had anyone that went to war. So I'd like you guys to call too and tell your story. I think it'd be a very important story to get out there. And uh, the next story that I want to tell, and it's about Nick, because uh, this one are are for the military members who's been through PTSD and felt the need to 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 end it all. Nick's been through it, and he's he's a survivor, a suicide survivor. So I want Nick to go ahead and tell his story right now. My name is Nick. I'm 27. I'm a Geek Squad agent, uh, a uh, survivor of suicide of a suicide attempt uh, overdose. Um, happened a little less than five years ago. My dad and I didn't get along at all. We hadn't had a really good relationship for about 22 years. We fought all the time. I felt completely alienated from him. Um, It was one of those 
He always told me he loved me, but at the same time, I never really felt like I saw it or felt it. It was um, about a couple days after Thanksgiving, 2009, sitting in my room, heard him and my mom fighting. Kind of opened my door to listen to see what was going on, and I heard him complaining about the fact that I didn't have a job, that he wanted me to pay rent. Um, if I couldn't pay rent, he was kicking me out. He wanted to cut my phone off. So in my mind, um, he didn't really love me. He just wanted to completely cut me off from everything. I was going to be out on the street, had nowhere to go. Um, and that killed me because I love my family. So I was just, I was sitting there at my desk, I'm looking at my uh, bottle of Malibu. I uh, was struggling with um, alcohol abuse at the same time, as well as battling uh, PTSD. And I had a bottle of uh, Tegretol, took it out, laid it out on my, my desk. Uh, total of 24 pills there, each of them were uh, 200 milligrams each. Um, Took them all at the same time, washed it down with the Malibu, just kind of sat at my desk and thought about it and just said, you know, if my dad doesn't care about me, you know, this person that's supposed to be the, my role model, um, if he doesn't care about me, why would anybody else, you know, what's, what's my purpose of even being here? And I just, I just let it sit for a little bit, about an hour into it. I ended up telling my mom what I'd done. I went to my little brother's room. He was uh, about nine at the time. And told him I loved him. Completely broke down. Because I realized, you know, I still had him. I still had my mom. And my mom and I talked about it. My, my doctor at the time, I'd been friends with him on Facebook and told him what my symptoms were. Things started getting a little, uh, little blurry. It was basically felt like I was drunk, so it was nothing new to me. Um, he thought that that was going to be the worst of it. My mom woke up the next morning, found me laying in a puddle of my own vomit. Completely catatonic. She thought I was dead. Ended up, uh, calling the, uh, the ambulance. I remember the ambulance door shutting, her telling me she loved me. And then thinking I was just in some sort of bad dream. I could completely remember every turn we made, I could map out the street, thinking to myself, oh yeah, when I get there, I'm just gonna take this IV out and everything's gonna be okay. I ended up blacking out again for about another two, three hours from what I was told. I woke up in the hospital. I couldn't talk. I couldn't really move. I could hear everybody just fine. And I was just laying there thinking, what did I do? My dad, apparently, he was working at the time. He drove from... Culver City up to Lancaster in about 40 minutes. 
found him and my mom and called him and said, your son just tried to kill himself. I actually, that the night before I had asked her not to tell him what I'd done. And I actually almost ended their marriage because of that. It's something that I regret. And laying there on that table, or the hospital bed rather, I realized, you know, this was a long-term solution to a short-term problem. That you know, suicide wasn't the answer. You know, maybe it was that that really I took that to show my dad. You know, I'm really not seeing how you feel because of the way you act. But at the same time, it was a very selfish choice that I made. Um, now, five years later, my relationship with my dad's actually really good. Uh, you know, we go out, um, we shoot pictures together. He moved a little bit, but moved away. But we talk all the time now, whenever we're together, we're laughing, we're joking. And I realized that this whole time, he really did care about me. He really did love me. He just didn't really fully know how to show it because he didn't really fully understand me. And part of it was my fault that I didn't really allow him to come into my world because I always felt like he was out to get me. I always felt like he was the bad guy. And you know, I was wrong. And now I've really close with both my parents. My little brother's 14 now. Um, my mom's, she's doing good. And, you know, my dad, he just lost both his parents. So I've been there for him. He was more worried about me going off the deep end again. And I'm more worried about him. <laughs> and so we, we finally, we, we got that family in it back. You know, keeping it bottled up, I realized was probably the worst thing that I could have done. Um, you know, talking about things, talking about problems, talking about the way you feel. Even if you feel like killing yourself, talk about it with somebody that you trust. Because you, whenever you start feeling that alone, it's usually because you've alienated yourself. It's because you've cut everybody off because you automatically assume that nobody cares. That you need to let people in and let them try to help you. Even if it's just to listen. Sometimes that's all it takes. It just takes that, that one person to just sit there, listen to what you've got to say. Listen to how you feel. You know, sometimes you just need that hug. You know, somebody to give you a hug, tell you it's okay. And it's going to be okay. Had I seen something like Trigger then, um, it would have helped me not feel so alone. Knowing that there are people out there just like me that are going through the same things. And that I wasn't alone, that I wasn't alienated and that 
my choice at the time wouldn't have been the right one. And just that, you know, we do get so, we, we get wrapped up in our emotions. We get wrapped up in how we feel that you know, certain people that we feel are the, the causes of our problems that may care about us and, and that we just, we, we cut out everybody, especially those who do care. And, you know, I was fortunate. It wasn't too late for me. I was, I, I survived. And those people that cared were all right there all along. And if a film like Trigger would have showed me that sooner before I decided to make that choice, that all you have to do is just open your eyes. And usually the people that are right there, whether physically on your phone, on your computer that you're talking to, that you're not alone. There's always someone there who cares. Yeah, since I've really shifted my perspective about this, my life has changed. It's pretty much done a 180. I'm living on my own. I've got a great job. I've got coworkers I love. My family and I are closer than ever. Um, I have been able to help several friends from making the same choice that I made almost five years ago. And I've helped others help others because of my story, because of what I learned. And to me, I don't necessarily now regret the decision I made because I did survive and because now I can use that as a means to help others, to help people that think, oh, you know, nobody understands what I'm going through. And I can just look at them and say, I know what you're going through. I know how you feel. I've been there. And what you want to do isn't worth it. When I chose to tell my mom after I did it, because she and I have always been close. My dad works in the film industry, so he's gone a lot. So it was always just she and I for the first 13 years of my life until my little brother was born. So she's always been like a friend to me. And I felt like I kind of owed her that respect in a sense, to say, hey, you know, this is what I've done. I don't know what's gonna happen. Um, and then when I told my little brother, when I walked into the room, he could tell something was wrong. You know, nine years old, the kid was super intuitive. Um, and I realized I'm leaving him behind. This is gonna scar him for the rest of his life. And when I was hugging him and telling him how much I loved him, how proud I was of him. At that moment, I immediately regretted what I did because that wasn't fair to him. You know, I realized I'm his role model. I am exactly who he wanted to be. And for all I knew that next morning, I was gonna be gone. felt and how it would have impacted him.
that's, I think, the hardest part of everything. More so than my mom, more so than any of my friends. It's my little brother. And knowing that I almost did that to him, that I almost took his big brother out of his life. That moment was when I really realized it wasn't the right thing to do. That I had made a huge mistake. That, you know, I really didn't fully grasp the concept or the, the reality of where my life was. The fact that, you know, I thought nobody cared and then I realized I, I've got this kid that his whole world revolves around me. And that I almost took that from him. Uh, the men in my life definitely, we, we really don't. We're very, we're very closed off. I mean, I come from, I'm a second generation Ukrainian American. Um, and it, it's very men don't show emotion. We close off. And I've come to realize that, well, I understand the culture because I've lived it my whole life. There is a time when you can't be close off anymore. And it's when you feel like the sun is setting and night's coming upon you. When you need to speak up. When you need to say, hey, I'm feeling lost. I'm feeling lonely. Somebody help me. But I'm better now. I have family that loves me. I have friends that care. That always did. And I'm not alone. No one's alone, truly. You may feel like it, but there's always at least one person. Always. And, you know, that I had the power to turn things around. In the end, it, it was always me. It was my perspective. It was everything that was going on in my mind that blurred out the reality and created this dark world that really didn't exist. That was just, it was completely fabricated by my own mind. And all I had to do was open my eyes and the darkness would have been gone. Thank you very much, Nick, for sharing your story with us. Again, the numbers, I'm giving out the numbers as much as I can because I want someone who's listening to this to really take this number down and put it in your contact information. If you can't remember the number, take some time to put this in your contact information. 1-800-SUICIDE or 1-800-273-8255. That's the National Suicide Prevention Lifeline. If you're international, you can get your numbers by going to suicide.org and search for it there. Or just search in your search engine. But it's just important for you to have the number on your fingertips if you are, if you feel this way. But I can... I can't relate to to Nick in some ways, but other ways I, I can. And 
with loving someone and you knowing that they don't love you or you feel that they don't love you. And I mean, if you really and truly love them with your heart and they don't love you at all, that could definitely drive you to the edge, drive you to to suicide. Like like Nick said, he his dad was his idol and he felt like he just wanted to throw him out on the street and kick him out and didn't care for him. And then when he saw his little brother it, and it really hit him that that his that there is someone there who loves him, his little brother and his mother. So um thank God that he made it and hopefully he don't regress back to that. God knows I don't ever plan on regressing back to that moment, but you know, you never know, but you gotta keep the faith strong and I just don't want the enemy is like I said, the enemy I truly believe that the enemy is within and the enemy will try to destroy you and will make you think any and everything that no one loves you and no one cares but someone always loves you and someone always cares and at least I know in my even if no one on earth cares I know God will always care so that's enough motivation for me to stay alive like I said if you don't believe in God then then there's an issue there but I feel that he's he'll be he'll always care. No one, no one will love you as much as he does. So, even though I'm single and I'm by myself, I don't f ever feel like I'm by myself because God is guiding me, and He needs me on Earth for a reason. So this is the reason why I feel that my attempts fail, and He needs me here for whatever purpose, which I still haven't figured out yet. But he definitely needs me here. But it hurts deeply, deeply bad when you love someone with all your heart and they just don't want nothing to do with you at all. And how do you deal with that? It's, it's How do you deal with that? Well, there's one, you know, there's one thing that you can do. You can accept the fact that Okay, well, if it's, let's just say, intimate love, and let's don't say like a father or a mother because that's different, but like an intimate love. With that, you can say, listen, I love this person with all my heart, but they don't love me back. You know, it's, it is free will. God made us with free will. And uh, they don't have to love you back. You can't make someone love you. Even if you gave them a million dollars, they'd only be there because of the money. They won't actually love you. And that's not going to make you feel any better because you're going to know that eventually you're gonna, it's going to hit home that they're only there because of the money. They don't love you. And then you're going to still feel just as horrible. So it's not worth trying to buy love. You can't. You can't buy love. So don't even go that route. Money can't buy you love. It's an absolute fact. So... I've tried that route too, trying to shower her with gifts and, and money and flowers. And in the end, she left anyway and said I was just too, you know, well, it's not about my love life or my ex-love life or whatever, but you just say that, you know, you grieve, you cry or do whatever, then eventually you're going to, 
you know, find someone else who will love you like you love them. And don't fall in love too quickly if it's off of a rebound because that's not going to last either. Speaking from experience, you can't uh, you can't love right off the rebound. It's not going to work because the other person is it's not fair to the other person. You know, that's you loving them off of a rebound. It's not fair. So that definitely won't work. You can't do that. So I could understand Nick feeling that his idol didn't love him. And so there was, no one else would love him. But like I said, he he found out in time. Well, he didn't find out in time because he was taken to the hospital after he took all those pills, 24 pills, I think he said. But... um he did find out that there were at least two persons in the world that love him. And I'm not sure if he was a believer in God. I don't remember or not, but God always loves him. So I want to move this along and I want to play Holly's story because Holly's story was also another suicide attempt story. So I'm going to move this on to Holly. And kind of how to move on from it or deal with it in the moment if you're dealing with it right now okay so today is sunday the 21st 2017 and seven years ago today i attempted suicide so it's kind of emotional to talk about but full disclosure i'm doing way better now i'm very happy don't worry seven years ago when i was 17 is when i attempted suicide I think a year or two before that, I was diagnosed with bipolar disorder. And at the time, I was on medication and one of the three different meds I was taking is something called Seroquel. It helps you sleep. A big part to bipolar disorder is making sure you get enough sleep because when you don't, that usually sends people into a manic state or sometimes a depressive state. But anyways, I was taking that medication and then we were waning me off of it around that time. I think it had been four or six months before May. With my doctor, we were working on taking me off of it because I didn't like having to rely on it. I didn't like feeling like I couldn't do something if something came up after taking it, which happened a lot. The point of this video isn't to dump on people, but the doctor I had at the time was not in mine and my family's opinions fully educated on what she was doing and didn't do it properly. So what ended up happening is that I was starting to get depressed at nighttime. As that day came closer and closer, I was thinking about committing suicide, kind of making a plan, thinking about what I wanted to do. The night of, I was hanging out with somebody that I wanted to kind of have like a last time with. I didn't tell her, uh, I didn't say anything. I'm sure I was acting kind of weird. As far as I know, she didn't know. At the time I was very determined to do it and I didn't want someone to stop me, is the point. It wasn't like I, this was like a cry for help or attention or something, like I really was committed to doing this and was ready to be done. And then I took her home after we hung out and just went to sleep early. And I had written a note basically saying that I was doing this for me, that I was sorry to everyone around me. The pills that I was going off of, the sleeping ones, I had just 
received a refill of them a few days before. So I had basically a full bottle, 27 of them. I know that for sure. Cause I know it had only been a few days since I got the refill. I took all of them. It's just, I, I just waited, I went to sleep. At some point, I think the medication normally made me need to go to the bathroom in the night, but having taken all of them, I really had to go to the restroom. I think it was just a couple hours later, if even. And so I woke up and I was disoriented and stumbling around, kind of like a really, really drunk person almost, if you can imagine. And I was trying to go to the bathroom and so my bedroom was here and then I had to go out into the hallway, go down the hallway and the bathroom was here. And my sister's bedroom was over here. My mom's bedroom is next to mine. So I hope that little map made sense. At the time, my mom had a ton of boxes of just crap in the hallway because I couldn't stand straight and I was disoriented. I stumbled into them and it made a ton of noise. I remember shushing them because I was just not here. I had a twin bed and it was pushed up against my closet, which didn't have doors on it. And the closet was just like a normal, normal size closet. It was sliding doors, but the sliding doors weren't there. So I went back to the bedroom and because I was disoriented, I was trying to get back in the bed, but I was getting confused and I ended up getting stuck basically in my closet, trying to get to the bed, which was like right next to me. That I don't remember, but I was told by my mom. But all the noise that I made in the hallway woke up my sister who came to check on me, realized something was going on. She went and got my mom. Then my mom and sister took me to the psych ward, but they said, this is a medical emergency and you need to take her to the ER. So they took me to the hospital and I don't remember being driven there. Obviously I was. What I do remember is when we got there, my sister was like holding onto my arm because I was like swaying all over the place. And I remember her being slightly distracted or something, or maybe I just kind of went off on my own. I don't know. You know, like in hospitals, there's those glass walls and where the doors open up and it's all you can only see through. But because I was disoriented, I, I didn't realize that. And I ran into it and I remember falling over and thinking it was hilarious. And I remember just continuously saying, who runs into a wall? Then they put me in a the bed. They put an IV in me to get all that medication out of my system. And I was in urgent care for, I believe two days. And then in the hospital for another four days while they monitored me and made sure my heart rate went back down and all of this. From what I understand, I was very close to dying. Um, and Basically, because they were able to act fast enough, I didn't. I remember having a lot of hallucinations for the first few days while everything was getting out. And then I remember being in the hospital and being miserable and having a really, really hard time with coming to terms that it didn't work. And I wouldn't say that I was happy for a while. Yeah, I wasn't super happy. Not gonna sugarcoat it. I went to the hospital, I was in uh, urgent care for two days, and then once my heart uh, calmed down and I was okay again, but I, was, I still had an IV in me and everything. I was there for a total of six days. And then I was visited by a new doctor who was specialized in bipolar disorder. And originally he was supposed to just be doing my evaluation, but then he ultimately became my doctor, which I was very grateful for because he, was a great doctor and I really benefited from having him in my life. Past tense because now I'm no longer adolescent and I don't live in New Mexico anymore, so he's no longer my doctor. Then after the hospital, I was admitted into a children's psychiatric ward. I didn't have a choice in the matter, I had to go. I was underage, so my parents were the ones that signed me 
into going and I didn't have a say in the matter. And then I was there for six days as well. So it was a total of 12 days and I really hated it there. The place that I was in, it was very close to my mom's neighborhood and I could see my neighborhood from the outside area at this facility. And that was really, really hard. Partly what made it really difficult is I didn't know when I was gonna get released and not knowing when things are gonna happen is always really difficult on me personally. I like to have kind of a schedule. I like to know what's going on. I like to know when things are gonna happen in general, but especially in that moment, that was really, really hard. There were a couple doctors there and they would come and evaluate us every day or other day, depending on the situation. And I just felt like a number, you know? I wasn't a person to them. I was just a number. So I didn't like that experience. My sister was really, really great through this whole time. She was there every day. I think there was one day she couldn't be there and she sent her best friend to come and be with me. That was while I was still in the hospital because she had to work and she couldn't get out of it. Um, but she came and spent most nights with me when I was in the hospital. She was really great. The other thing that made it really difficult is that the place I was in was labeled as short-term. So that meant we, the patients, weren't going to be there more than, I think, two months was the cutoff. My roommate in there, she was another suicide attempt. There was one night where we were talking and she was explaining that she had been there for either two or three weeks at that point, And now she was just waiting for her spot in a long-term facility, which is, I think, typically two to eight months. And then she was saying how that when she came in originally, she didn't think it was gonna be a long time. She thought it was gonna be just a couple days, but now she was going to a long-term place. And then, so hearing that and not knowing if that could happen to me was really, really scary because I did not want to be there in general. I certainly didn't want to be there even longer. That was basically my suicide attempt experience. I know this is like really cliche because everyone says this, but it really does get better. You know, especially in adolescence, I get it can be really hard. We all feel like we don't fit in and like we don't belong and like we're unwanted or unattractive or whatever it might be, but it really, it, it does get better. It took me about a year to fully move on completely to where I was in a good place again. I, um, of course, have had some really shitty days, sometimes because of mental health and other times because of life. I mean, there's, I think that is the hard thing for people with mental health issues. Are you feeling this way because of life or because of mental health? And I think more commonly than not, you are feeling that way because of life happening and anyone would feel that way. It just seems a little bit more extreme because of mental health, if that makes sense. Sometimes I think about my suicide stuff and that overwhelms me. That doesn't really happen to me very much anymore, um, but it does happen sometimes, especially like around this time and it makes me think about it all and think about what ifs and about the people I've met since then that I would have never met and the way they've changed my life, the way I have changed. Thank you very much, Holly, for that story, another suicide attempt. I know it takes courage to tell your story to a national audience that's listening and watching your story online. And I just want to say once again, there's always someone out there that cares and wants to hear your story, whether it be the National Suicide Prevention Line, which is one 800 273-8255 or just simply call 1-800-SUICIDE. There's always someone out there 
for you. Always. Like I said, even if if someone was to text me and um, just want to talk about something, I would. As long as it woke me up or a phone call woke me up, I would pick the phone up. But some people, especially teenagers, they prefer to text because they could be more anonymous that way. I found that to be true as far as my fans go as far as reaching out to me wanting to to say they love my music or whatever they would prefer to text me rather than call and so many uh teenagers prefer to text which is why i want to turn my attention over to something that's called the crisis help which is uh the crisis text line i'm sorry the crisis text line or CTL for short, Crisis Text Line. And this is the organization that got over 40,000 text messages and the majority was from teenagers who were in, in, you know, were thinking about committing suicide. So that's more than 11 million messages and they launched in 2013. So... The number for them, it's easy, uh, easy number to remember, 741-741. You text that number if you're feeling suicidal, feel like you have no alternative and no way out. And I don't think it's just for suicide, it's crisis help. So if you're in crisis, you know, you're being battered, a battered woman, you've been being raped or whatever, 741-741. But... I'm going to play a a quick infomercial that CTL produced. And I think it's a very powerful uh, organization, especially for teenagers, because they, as I know, I could say firsthand that they prefer to text than to actually make a phone call different than my generation. So I'm going to play this quick infomercial and I'll be right back. That's the sound of someone in crisis, sending a text message that could read, I'm afraid to go to class because I'll be bullied. Or, I don't want to cut myself. Can you help? Within five minutes, a trained counselor will respond. Hi, my name is Sara. It sounds like you have a lot on your mind today. Do you want to tell me a little bit more about what's going on? Crisis Text Line, or CTL, is the first national 24-7 intervention hotline exclusively by text messaging. It offers anonymity, and it's as easy as 741-741. Just ask crisis counselor Sara Lukian. You could be bullied at school and just text between classes or waiting at the bus stop. You can text from behind a closed door when you're maybe hiding or taking refuge from an abusive partner or relative, and nobody knows that you're doing it. Did another one just fling? Yes, so I'm going to accept this texter. Once a counselor at a traditional suicide hotline, Sarah now volunteers for CTL. Today, she's logged in at home for her four-hour shift. What was the biggest difference that you noticed from talking to people, hearing their voice, and texting with them? Teens are so honest via text. They will cut right to the heart of what's bothering them. So that's somebody joining the queue. 
to how long have you been in the space now? Crisis Text Line is the brainchild of entrepreneur Nancy Lublin. Launched in 2013, while at the helm of DoSomething.org, the largest online youth organization, Lublin received a text message from a girl that stopped her in her tracks. She texted us saying that she was being raped by her father. And we thought, we can't just send her a phone number. We did, we sent her a hotline. But we realized that it was so much deeper. If you're going to share something that personal, that intimate, that horrific with strangers, there was a need for a text line. That text inspired CTL. Now, 40,000 text messages, the majority from teenagers, are exchanged each day with crisis counselors around the country. That's more than 11 million messages since it started. So in a way, you're growing faster than Facebook. We spread geographically faster than they did when they first launched. We launched quietly in Chicago and El Paso. And in four months, we were in every area code in the United States. I just heard back from the texter. Sounds like she's having some turmoil at home. A lot of fighting in the house, not a lot of sleep. So what will you ask her to check? The first thing I would want to know is if she's feeling suicidal. We like to do risk assessment as early in the conversation as possible. So I'm just going to respond. If the pills are right there in front of them, then we trigger what's called an active rescue. So most of the time they tell us where they are, and then while the counselor is texting them, a supervisor who are paid master level degree people on our staff triggers the active rescue, calls 911, and gets a police or EMT to go to that person. According to the CDC, suicide is the second leading cause of death for young people between the ages of 10 and 24. It resulted in approximately 5,500 lives lost last year. In 2013, 17% of high school students in the United States considered suicide, 14% had a suicide plan, and 8% attempted suicide one or more times. Bob Philbin is CTL's chief data scientist. He compiles all the confidential text messages that stream in to create a real-time map of crises in America. We thought when we started Crisis Text Line that bullying was going to be one of the primary issues. Instead, what we're seeing is the top issues are depression, suicidal thoughts, self-harm. What he's discovered, suicidal thoughts are more prevalent on Sundays. Arkansas is ranked number one for eating disorders, and substance abuse peaks at 7 a.m. Remember the young person Sarah was texting with earlier? She's not considering suicide, and she's just written that she actually has to go to class. So the way I'm going to end this conversation is just to say, again, I'm glad that you texted in. Remember that we're here 24-7 if you're in crisis. For WebMD, I'm Soledad O'Brien. So, some very powerful stuff. Uh, very, very uh, successful organization. Uh, CTL, Crisis Text Line, 741-741. Please, Teenagers will remember that one quicker than 1-800-273-8255. Text 741-741 if you're in crisis. It's definitely worth texting. That's a number that you can remember. I just 
found out about this organization and I already know the number by heart already. And like I said, it's just not for suicide, it's a crisis help helpline. So you can text for if you feel like you're in crisis and um, they will help you out. So this was a very informative show and I hope that if anyone who is listening was thinking about suicide and they feel like they have no way to turn, they at least know that there's a few places they can turn, which is uh, that CTL, 741-741. They can text there. Someone will love them and care about them and talk to them. Or National Suicide Prevention Lifeline, which is 1-800-273-8255. Or they can call 1-800-SUICIDE. But most teens, I'm going to guess they're going to remember 741741 because they love texting. And that's a number that I definitely encourage them to save in their contact information, CTL, and text it if you're in crisis and you feel like you have no way to turn. 741741. This is a very... uh very informative show and I hope that I was able to help someone and talk them out of it if I wasn't able to help or talk you out of it certainly there are professionals that work at these agencies that will that will be able to assist you further so please uh please consider calling that number right now 1-800-273-8255 or texting right now 741 741 if you are in need thank you Oh, baby, come on, so come on, people, baby.